A Fire Stays Lit. Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, as she called us to live to a higher standard each day and not be satisfied with just a little religion in our lives. That's a substitute that's shallow compared to what God wants us to have. As this series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who were influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today we continue our extended series about Jim Elliott and the Operation Alka and other events during Elizabeth's time in Ecuador. Today we hear about romance and reality, Gateway to Joy 125, and a fire that never goes out. Also coming up, we'll hear from Jim and Elizabeth's daughter, Valerie, about going back to Ecuador at age 11. And Elizabeth's good friend, Kathy Gilbert, will have a comment on suffering, Amy Carmichael, Lars, and about fire words. What are those? Stay tuned and hear about it later. First, though, Gateway to Joy 125, Romance and Reality. Does the idea of going to live with a tribal people like the Alcas seem romantic? But the reality can be something else. How does that relate to the idea of marriage? What does the name Alka actually mean? And when is the social hour for the Alcas? You might be surprised. Think about the intrigue and inconvenience of jungle living today. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot talking with you this time about romance and reality. I have to admit that there was a certain amount of romance in my imaginations of going in to live with a savage tribe that had killed my husband. But as with every aspect of discipleship, Whatever may look like romance from a distance turns into hard reality. And I don't mean hard in the sense of difficult always, but discipleship works down where we live, doesn't it? Like marriage, there are a lot of amazing similarities between discipleship and marriage. Marriage usually begins with some kind of romance, and it doesn't take very long before the couple moves into reality, finding out that they're living with a person who is less than perfect. And there are always certain aspects which are unexpected in both discipleship and marriage. Well, I have been telling you about the approach to Alca territory, beginning to live in a little clearing in the eastern jungle of Ecuador on a river called the Tijuano with a people who had been Stone Age people who wore no clothes except a piece of string around their hips and who in 1956 had killed five American missionaries. They were called Alcas by outsiders. Quechua Indians called them Alcas because it means naked or fierce. And here I was with my little three-year-old daughter living in an Alca house. It had six poles and a thatched roof. No walls, no floors, and no furniture. Usually I would be awakened early in the morning by the sound of someone singing. The Alcas had their social hour between two and five. That sounds a little odd to us, but if you think about the fact that they had the good sense to go to bed with the chickens, they went to bed as soon as it got dark at night rather than sit up and try to be sociable when they're exhausted from a hard day's work. So if you go to bed at 6.30 or 7 
you're going to wake up somewhere between 2 and 5 and not find it too difficult to get up. Well, they didn't have to get out of bed to begin their social hour because everybody lived in a house with no walls. It was a small clearing, and conversation could be carried around from house to house, relayed if anybody missed anything, but you could hear most of what went on. And the song was a way in which people often began the social hour of the day. A man simply lying in his hammock, waking up and beginning to sing, a song which sounded like this. I've counted as many as 70 repetitions of verse 1. And then they go on to verse 2. Etc., etc. Well, I won't go through every minute of the day, but the first thing that would happen would be that an announcement would be made when I would open my eyes, because I, being a freak in their midst, a foreigner and an outsider, and apparently retarded because I didn't speak their language, they watched everything that I did with the greatest unflagging interest. There were two boys who had established themselves on an observation platform in the house next door to mine. Their names were Komi and Kinda. And Komi and Kinda were two teenage boys whose black eyes would be looking directly into mine when I opened mine in the morning, and they would immediately make the first announcement of the day, which was Baro, Nyani Mamangamba, which means she's awake. And that stunning piece of news would be relayed from house to house all the way around the clearing. She's awake. I would get myself out of my hammock, unwrap myself from the blanket in which I slept, hang the blanket up underneath the thatched roof, and take out from an Indian carrying net a rubber bag in which there was a transistor transceiver radio, which had been built for us by radio engineers of missionary radio station HCJB in Quito. I would then start to carry this contraption across the clearing to connect it to an aerial on the far side. And as I started across the clearing, the second announcement would be made, which was, That means there she goes with that talking thing again. Apeninga was their word for the radio. And as I walked across the clearing, every step would be accompanied by sound effects. Can you imagine how sheepish that made me feel? I didn't know whether to keep in step or to shift my gait quickly in order to throw them off. But after a day or two, you realize that you are really expected to provide entertainment, and you might as well just go along with it. Well, we had a certain number of inconveniences. We had a lovely river that ran past our house. We got our cooking water from the section upriver. We did our bathing and our clothes washing. In the section in the center, we did our washed our dishes there too, and the bathroom was around the bend downriver. Now, I have to say that it wasn't exactly my idea of convenience. A kitchen sink is a good idea for washing dishes, and I can certainly think of better bathroom facilities than a muddy jungle river, muddy part of the time anyway. But it was not nearly so bad as my descriptions of it may sound. People say, how did you stand it? How do you live in such a primitive situation? But the truth is, you know, we human beings are really quite adaptable. 
and things never turn out to be nearly as bad as we expect them to be. The translation of a romantic adventure, a dream of spiritual victories into reality, is always a very daily, very costly thing. The translation of one's romantic notions of marriage into reality becomes a costly thing, a thing which invariably requires sacrifice. I've been thinking a lot lately about the fact that love always requires sacrifice. And if we never have to sacrifice for somebody, we never really learn to love them as deeply as we do if we've sacrificed. I think this explains the deep love of parents for their children, the fact that both have made costly sacrifices. I don't want to dramatize my life with the Indians in the jungle by making it sound more costly, more romantic, or more difficult than it was at all. So it wasn't sacrifice that was the uppermost thought in my mind, but it did get very humdrum. You do get used to things, and what may have looked like romance from a distance turns out to be reality. And one day follows another, and you get used to the fact that everybody sits around talking a language you can't understand, and it gets pretty boring after a while. And there were things about it which were not entirely to my tastes. But discipleship always involves things which are not necessarily to our tastes. There's a certain amount of romance when we think of ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ. We can look at, quote, spirituality, unquote, with dreamy, vague notions of holiness and sanctity. But when it begins to impinge directly on the way we like to live, there's nothing very romantic about that, is there? You might think, oh, it would be great to go and live in a jungle clearing for a week or two. I'd like to visit a place like that. I think that would be fantastic. And it would be interesting. I guarantee that. But would you really want to live there? Well, probably not for very long. The idea of marriage might be a dream of happiness and fulfillment. But very soon it becomes an invasion, an all-out revolution of inconvenience. I said this not very long ago in a public meeting, and afterwards I got a really angry letter from a young couple telling me that I had left out all the joys of marriage and that they felt that it was entirely untrue to say that marriage is an inconvenience. Well, perhaps I could say it's merely a difference of opinion, but in actual fact, I don't think I've ever talked to a couple who has not acknowledged that there are a good many inconveniences in marriage. It's an invasion of privacy. One loses one's independence, the right to make unilateral decisions. There are a good many things which are upheavals, revolutions and revelations in marriage. The same thing is true in discipleship. Do you remember the story of the rich young man who came to Jesus and when Jesus told him that he had to sell everything he had, his ideas of becoming a follower of this Jewish rabbi seemed to fade into the background. 
And in Luke 14, verses 25 to 33, we read this. Once when great crowds were accompanying him, Jesus turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be a disciple of mine. No one who does not carry his cross and come with me can be a disciple of mine. Jesus was immediately disabusing the crowds of any romantic notions that they might have of following him. If it was going to cost them something, were they going to have to hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters in order to be his disciples? Jesus was laying it out before them that it was going to cost them something. Not that he meant literally hate in the usual sense, but I think he was contrasting their feelings for their relatives with their genuine love of him. And if it ever came to a choice, it would have to be Jesus Christ. No one who does not carry his cross and come with me can be a disciple of mine. That brings romance down to reality. Gateway to Joy 125, Romance and Reality. Later on, we'll hear about a fire that never goes out. We'll hear from Elizabeth's good friend, Kathy Gilbert, as she talks about the Alcas and fire words that Elizabeth had. But right now, let's hear from Jim and Elizabeth's daughter, Valerie Elliott Shepard. She'll tell us about what it was like going back to Ecuador when she was 11. Um, I did miss my friends. Probably the hardest thing was when we went back to Ecuador when I was the age of 11. We went for Marge Saint's wedding to Abe Vanderpoy. She got married in Quito, Ecuador. And so we went to see the Indians that we had lived with just three years before, the Quichuas. And then we went to see the Alcas too, the Waurani. And I was so sad because I'd completely forgotten the language, even though my mother had tried very hard to help me keep speaking it. She kept those languages in her head the rest of her life. Uh, she didn't speak it much when she had dementia, but she certainly did remember it in 1996 when we went down to Ecuador and saw the Waurani and the Quichuas, many of the same ones that we had lived with. So um, she was amazing with her, with her understanding of languages and perfect imitation too. Valerie Elliott Shepard, who spent some time as a youngster in Ecuador and was able to go back a little bit later at the age of 11. Well, right now, let's get to our second Gateway to Joy broadcast for today. Gateway to Joy 126, a fire that never goes out. You know, we've been hearing about life in the jungles of Ecuador. What would you think is the most important thing in an Alca house? In the last few talks, I've been describing my life with a tribe of Stone Age Indians who live in the eastern jungle of Ecuador. We were living in a little house with no walls and no floors and no furniture on one of the small headwaters of the Amazon, a river called the Tehuano, which runs into the Curarai, which runs eventually into the Amazon. The most important thing in an Alca house, and we soon discovered the most important thing in our house, was a fire. We had a fire right in the middle of the house on the mud floor, right beside my hammock. I slept in a hammock. And at night, I got into the same rhythm that the Alcas got into very easily of waking about every two hours in order to pull the logs together 
and fan the fire to keep it going all night. We had the fire going 24 hours a day. In the daytime, it was partly to keep the gnats away. Didn't do a whole lot of good that way. Partly also to cook on. And at night, we had some faint hope that it might keep away some of the wild animals and the snakes. It didn't always work that way either. I remember waking one moonlight night to find a very large snake coiled within about a foot of my daughter's head where she was sleeping on her bamboo slab just below my hammock. When the Indians would travel on the trail or in the canoe, they would carry fire with them. They had no matches. They had what they called a fire stick, which was a real nuisance. It takes about 15 minutes to make fire with a fire stick. It has to be rubbed very rapidly between the hands. The hands would be rubbed so hard that they would almost get so hot they couldn't stand it, and then they would take turns with somebody else. But if possible, they would carry fire with them wherever they went. Sometimes they would carry it via torch, or if they were traveling by canoe, they would put a broken piece of clay pot in the bow of the canoe and a few burning coals of fire in the clay pot. It was very handy not to have to chop wood very much. Because we had no walls in our houses, there was no limit to the size of a log that you could use for your fire. Usually in my house, I would have three logs sticking out three sides of the house, way out into the rain. And all you had to do was put a few pieces of kindling in between the three logs, and as the fire burned, you would gradually pull the logs together. So that's why I would have to wake up every two hours or so during the night to pull those logs together and make sure that the fire kept burning. And I learned from the Indians that a fire is not usually dead when you think it is, there were times when I would wake up and the ashes were totally gray, and yet using the feather fan that the Alcas had given me, made from the feathers of a macaw, I would fan those gray ashes and discover that deep in the heart was a living spark. And the fanning would fuel that spark. But it does take at least two to keep that fire burning. You can't have a log by itself that has to be touching another one. And so I think of that as a beautiful illustration of what marriage is supposed to be. The laying of one log against another in order to establish warmth and light and sometimes sparks. It's a living, consuming thing. But sometimes it dies, doesn't it? Because the people have grown apart because the logs are not kept close enough together and the ashes cool off. I think of fire as a spiritual illustration of many things, and that's not something I got out of my head. I got it straight out of the Bible. We find that fire signifies the relationship with God. You remember Moses taking care of sheep and goats out there in the wilderness for his father-in-law, he saw a bush which was on fire, but as he drew closer, he noticed something very strange, which was that the bush was not burning up. It was not consumed. And as he drew closer to it, a voice came from out of that burning bush, and it was the voice of God. Remember that Israel was led by God via a pillar of fire. 
the fire signified his presence going before them at night. In the daytime, it was a pillar of cloud. Then when Moses went up onto the mountain to receive the commandments from God, there was smoke, and where there's smoke, there's fire. And the word says that the Lord spoke out of the midst of the fire on the mountain. Our God is a consuming fire, says the prophet. Spirit of burning, he is called. And then we have the story of Isaiah. In the year that King Isaiah died, Isaiah says, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And it was when Isaiah beheld the holiness of the Lord, smoke and the glory of the Lord in the temple, that it was revealed to him then how unholy, how impure he was. There's nothing like taking a good long look at who God is and at his purity and holiness to make us recognize our impurity and our lack of holiness. And Isaiah's response at that revelation was, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am undone. And how were those lips purified? Well, with fire. An angel flew from the altar with a burning coal and touched his lips with fire. Another thing that I noticed about fire when I lived with Indians to whom fire was so terribly important was that it draws people together. It works that way in our houses too, doesn't it? When we have a fireplace, if people arrive at your house, if guests arrive, where's the first place they go? They walk into the living room, they see a fire burning on the grate, they immediately draw to the fire and hold out their hands. I love to see the way the Aukas, over the tiniest flame, would always cup their hands just to feel that warmth. Some of you may not realize that it can be quite cold in the Amazon rainforest. We lived at an altitude of about a thousand feet, so we appreciated fire at night. In fact, I tried sleeping without a blanket, just in my clothes, and I just about froze. I had to have my clothes and the blanket and the fire. The Aukas had neither clothes nor blanket, but they always had a fire, and they strung their hammocks like the spokes of a wheel so that their feet were hanging almost over the fire. When I asked them, aren't you cold? How can you sleep like that? They said, if our feet are warm, we're warm. When I took them out to civilization where there was electricity, do you know what they did the first time they saw an electric light bulb? Cupped their hands over it. They recognized that warmth and light go together. And on cold, rainy nights, there was nothing like waking up, feeling the rain coming into the sides of my wallless house. Sometimes my blanket would be a little bit damp. But being able to fan my fire and get delicious, dry warmth. Amy Carmichael, the missionary to India, whose writings have so profoundly influenced my own life, wrote many poems. This is one of them, called Dust and Flame. But I have seen a fiery flame take to his pure and burning heart mere dust of earth, to it impart his virtue, 
till that dust became transparent loveliness of flame. I think she must be talking about porcelain. You take dust of earth, clay in other words, and subject it to the heat of flame, and it can become transparent loveliness. And she goes on to say, O fire of God, thou fervent flame, thy dust of earth in thee would fall, and so be lost beyond recall, transformed by thee, its very name forgotten in thine own, O flame. And then in another poem, she says, Make me thy fuel, flame of God. Henry Martin of India prayed, Let me burn out for thee. A friend of mine has made a beautiful bronze motto for the wall of my study. I have it there, right where I sit when I do my writing, with Amy Carmichael's words on it. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. That is one of the prayers of my heart. The fuel is not worth very much, is it? It's just wood which would otherwise be thrown away. But it's worth a very great deal when it takes to its heart the fire. O fire of God, thou fervent flame, thy dust of earth, that's me, Lord, thy dust of earth in thee would fall and so be lost beyond recall, transformed by thee its very name forgotten in thine own, O flame. Gateway to Joy 126, a fire that never goes out. Well, before we end our time together, we do have one more guest. It's Elizabeth's good friend, Kathy Gilbert. Some thoughts about suffering, about Amy Carmichael, about Elizabeth's third husband, Lars Gren, and about fire words. I don't think a person can have a prophetic voice like Elizabeth without having suffered, and she did indeed suffer. Her fourth telling of the Word of God, it was shockingly supernatural the way her words pierced hearts and minds, and the presence she had. As soon as she would open her mouth, everyone stopped to listen. Not a word was wasted when she would speak. Each was like an arrow from God hitting the center of our hearts. Now there's one thing that she prayed she prayed for fire words, and so she quoted Amy Carmichael when Amy Carmichael prayed the very same thing. And this was Amy Carmichael's prayer. Oh God, my words are cold. Oh, that they were as flames. Thus I did cry, and thus God answered me. Thou shalt have words, but at this cost thou shalt, thou must first be burnt. And Elizabeth Elliot indeed had fire words, and her fire words came through much suffering. But those fire words set others on fire for Jesus. Now, Elizabeth's life and message on suffering, I think, is central for me personally, and I think that many would just benefit from her. And just knowing, as she would emphasize throughout all her teaching and in her books, suffering is never for nothing. She had a supernatural ability to impart the riches and hope and joy of God that she would show through her life and share through her words and her books. She would show us and share with us God's presence and companionship as he took her first and he takes us through a path of suffering. She deeply lived out and practiced what she preached. I believe one of the great benefits of her marriage to Lars 
was that it was a crucible or refiner's fire that made her life and message pure gold and her words as fire. She is my hero and she is my friend. And how very grateful I am for ElizabethElliot.org, where you have access to her words, to her books, to her newsletters, to all the resources. There's a wonderful way to get to know her through the ElizabethElliot.org website. And then the Elizabeth Elliot podcast, where you can discover Elizabeth for yourself. May God richly bless you. Elizabeth's good friend, Kathy Gilbert. Well, it looks as though our time together is coming to an end. Let me thank you for letting us come into your home, office, wherever you happen to be today. Thanks for letting us come along with you. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliot Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the resources available at elizabethelliot.org. Until next time, may God remind you daily that you're loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms 